Shane, alcoholic. All right. Appropriate talk or inappropriate talk? Ah, you guys are all the same. Alcoholics. Nobody wants to hear the appropriate talk. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, on, I'm really grateful to be in any meeting on any night, right? What's the alternative? And um, congratulations to uh, Maria and Campbell, right? Uh, milestones are... I mean, one year is an one one year is an amazing accomplishment. I know that it was three, and I can't remember how Maria Maria has a lot. I know that thirty-two. Um, there, I guess they're not. I think every day sober past like thirty days is a milestone. <laughs> you know, I I have my uh okay, my sobriety date is June twenty-first of two thousand. So it's easy for me to remember how many years I have. Two thousand, right? And um. I have my 30-day coin and my 60, my 90, and my six-month and my nine-month and my one-year. And then after that, I started sponsoring and I would give my coins away to the guys behind me. You know, I'd take a coin and then the next year or, you know, whenever, I would just gather coins. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't like, I wasn't going around to a bunch of meetings collecting coins. I would get my one coin and that would be it. You know what I mean? Like, and I'll explain why that was in a little bit. Uh, some of you know me and he heard my story. Most of you have not. And, uh, but for the ones that have, I apologize. It's the same, you know, it's going to be a little different. I'm not going to, I would like to do the inappropriate story. But this is being taped, I guess. And uh, if my wife finds out, she'll be, um, I don't know. I think she's okay when I when she's not here. It's okay. She's not here. <clears throat> but when she's, when she's here and I say inappropriate things from the podium, she gets very annoyed with me. And uh, she thinks I'm flirting with all the girls and... I kind of probably am. Yeah. I'm an alcoholic. Attention, right? I think that was my first um, drug of choice was your attention. And when, uh, you know, when I wasn't getting your accolades, like, I'll tell you what happened in second grade. In second grade, I got voted. I was a good student. I, I tested, I tested well. Uh, I tested real high, actually. Not bragging because i don't have the intelligence i had when i was in third grade but uh but i tested real high iq stuff right put me in special classes all that stuff when i was a little kid and i got i got voted class president but i i am a troublemaker kind of and uh and it was I think I was, yeah, it was like 1973. I was born in 66. So I was seven years old. Maybe it was 74. I might've been eight, but I was, um, you know, Nixon was being impeached at that time. And I was impeached as class president by my fellow students, not by the faculty. Like I got elected and then I got impeached. 
And uh, I don't know what that did to my psyche as a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, but I I don't know, it did something probably. And uh, anyhow, <clears throat> I don't want to do too much about the growing up stuff. I'll give you a quick overview. Like I grew up in L.A. and I grew up in a place called Los Feliz. It was like we're kind of by Dodger Stadium. And I went to this uh, school called Atwater Avenue. And when, when I lived there, in the, it was the early 70s. And, um, you know, my dad lived in Burbank because they, they broke up when I was like 18 months old. I have an older brother. He's a year older than I am. And uh, but I went to school and mm, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that we were living in. It was kind of it wasn't a, the barrio, but it was like it wasn't a back. This is before Los Feliz became like madonna's house you know what i mean like it's los Feliz. it was a lot of gang violence a lot of like one of my best friends he had a sister who was 14 or 15 and they were hispanic and she came home just with her face cut up with razor blades like these girls used to have these fights they would keep them in their hair i guess or something and it was like hardcore gang violence not like the you know drive-by shooting type stuff but like bats chains knives that kind of stuff and it was like a regular occurrence where i grew up at now i was a little kid so i wasn't involved in that but that was the area that i grew up in and uh there was a prevalent gang called frog town back then and um so <clears throat> i don't know if i'd stayed there i probably would have become a gangster but we moved away and um but that's that's where i grew up and then in 1974 uh, my mom met this guy. So my mom was a single mother. She worked in the studio. She worked for ABC, NBC, CBS. She was like an executive secretary. And I like grew up on the sets of different TV shows that were popular at that time. The Dating Game, Bowling for Dollars, Let's Make a Deal. So we would go on set with my, you know, my not during filming, but I mean, we could go on the sets and stuff and play around as little kids. And but my mom met this guy and my mom was an occasional drinker. She wasn't an alcoholic. Um, who's to say, right. And, but she meets this guy at this place called the Pike in long beach. And it was long beach back in the day was a, was a hot spot for alcoholics or just partying. It was a, it was a big party spot when they had a pier and it was called the Pike. And, uh, my mom met this guy and this guy was fresh out of Vietnam and, uh, it was 1974 and he was like, he wasn't militant because he had like long hair and he wore like a flak jacket and he dressed in like, you know, army greens kind of, but they weren't army style. So he was kind of a hippie uh, Vietnam vet guy, like a, like a survivalist kind of guy. And he had been a green beret. He was a marksman. And <clears throat> I was a sensitive alcoholic child. And, uh, like this guy coming into our lives when I was eight years old was like a shock to me because I had been used to being getting all the attention from my mom. I have an older brother, but he kind of like, you know, he was kind of my dad's favorite. I was my mom's favorite. I was mama's boy, you know, and uh, she meets this guy and they drink together. They drink a lot together. You know, that's what this guy does. He's, he likes to drink and he doesn't have a job or anything like that. And he just he like thinks he's a photographer or whatever. And he had all this camera equipment that he had stolen from somebody who knows he was a vagrant is what he was. And, and he kind of lived in a truck and, but he moved in with us and 
<clears throat> I think they were together about six months. It was the first time he hit her. And he hit her like, like she had to go to work and tell them that she was in a car accident because she had, you know, he broke her nose. She had two black eyes. He didn't like beat her, beat her, like, you know, continuously. But like, you know, I had never seen any kind of violence. I was a little kid. And uh, so they would drink and they would fight and they would drink and they would fight. And some kind of, and I didn't know, I was telling her, man, he's no good for you. I was kind of my mom's confidant when I was a little kid. I don't know why, but I was, I don't know that I was wise beyond my years, but she treated me, my mom treated me as an equal and still does to this day. She always has. And, and I don't know why, but it, we have that kind of relationship. I'm very close with my mother. And uh, he wants to move to Oregon. I don't, so we go from, you know, actually, we'd moved from Los Feliz to Beverly Hills to the 90210. His grandma had a property there. And I was going to school with all these kids. Like, I was, I was in these advanced classes. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I was in advanced classes in Los Feliz. And I get to Third Street School in Beverly Hills, and I'm the dumbest kid in class. It's not that I'm stupid. It's that their curriculum is so far advanced from ours. I'm lost. I don't know the math. I don't know the English. I don't know anything. I'm just like... And so, no, I, I go from like the ace student to the nobody. And then, so we moved from there to Ashland, Oregon is where we end up at. My stepdad had built a house on the back of this truck and he like carted us. It took us three months to get from Los Angeles to Ashland, which is the very first town across the border in Oregon on I-5. It's the first one. It's about 650 miles total or something like that. And it took us three months to get there. We lived in national parks. We went to hippie stuff. We did, you know, whatever. Anyways, um, that's where I took my first drink. I consciously took my first drink was I was, I think I was probably, I, I was 10 years old. I was in Ashland, Oregon. And it was uh, my buddy's mom grew pot and we were drinking the wine that they were drinking and smoking the pot. And I was 10 years old. <clears throat> the abuse continues with him and my mom gets pregnant. Now she's pregnant. She's in an abusive relationship. She's got two young sons with this guy and she's in Oregon and she'd never been out of L.A. before. And uh, he goes to jail for a weekend for whatever reason, the cops have been called a bunch of times to our house and for the abuse that was happening. And I remember this is how I felt when I'm 10 years old. Like he's a marksman. He has these guns and stuff, and he's kind of shown us how to shoot them. And at 10 years old, I'm contemplating murder. Like I'm thinking, can I shoot this guy and can I kill him? So like, will this really kill a person? Because I hadn't seen anyone ever get shot seen some stuff on tv but i didn't know if this was actually going to work and i was uh, i was scared i thought that i was a coward because i'm 10 years old and i can't protect my mother and she's everything to me you know most people's mothers are when you're a little kid and um you know hopefully for your whole life but uh anyways he goes to jail for a weekend and my mom packs us up and moves us back. And we land in Huntington Beach, California. It's 1977. And she's pregnant. And he was trying to, he was trying to cause a miscarriage. 
uh, with the abuse. And um, <clears throat> anyways, we, we get to Huntington Beach in 1977, and, and that's where you know, I consciously made a decision to start uh, drinking and using anything mind or mood altering on a daily basis. I had just come from this abusive situation. Now my mom's single again, and I'm going to school in Huntington Beach, and I'm meeting all these cool surfer kids, and I just left Oregon. And by the way, I was like two years ahead of their, them in curriculum. I didn't even have to go to school, really. And But we come back here, and I kind of like normal kid. But the first thing that for me that goes is like anything that has any – like I was getting some value out of as a little kid out of accolades and stuff like that, attention for my grades and for doing well and gold stars and the kind of stuff that you get when you're a little kid. And then – but the first thing that went for me when I started, you know, dr chasing drugs and alcohol – was school, man. Like I didn't care anymore. I, some days I would go, some days I wouldn't go. And back then they didn't call your parents, you know, they did every now and then, I guess, if you got in trouble. But, um, so I cut school a lot and I was a daily drinker and user from 12 years old, pretty much for the rest of my drinking career. Um, we used to hustle, you know, I, I didn't have to have someone like, I didn't have to go pimp beer or anything like that. My buddy had, had an older brother that I think, or something, a, a relation that worked at a liquor store. And it was, uh, we would go and stock the cooler and we'd put like alcohol in the trash cans. Cause we were back there doing this guy's job for him while he was 10 in the register. And we would stash alcohol in the back and then we would get it out and we would party. And then I would steal you know, pints from Alpha Beta cartons of cigarettes, you know, whatever I could steal, I would steal. And, uh, and I pretty much became a daily, you know, daily drinker and drugger from, uh, 12 years old, pretty much on. Um, okay. I'll get to my story now. I respect Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> my story has a lot of drug use, you know, like, <clears throat> I'm an alcoholic and uh, I drink vodka in the morning and I'll drink it all day long. Kamikazes and Min Miller genuine draft is kind of like my, is my thing. Um, and, uh, but if you, you know, if you tell me, Hey, here's like, I'll in one night, this is what a kegger party looks like for me. I took a hit of acid about four o'clock. I ate some mushrooms about six I might be drinking, you know, of course I'm drinking whatever's to be drunk. And I, sh I, by the time the kegger party starts at like nine o'clock at night, which was usually at my house, um, you know, there might be some, I might've freebased some cocaine be with the mushroom and the acid. And if you had a couple of pills, I'd take those probably. And that was how I lived my life. Like up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down the roller coaster, man. I like the roller coaster and I never want to get off. I, I've never said no to a drug or a drink. I don't think in my life I ever once said, no, thank you. I've had too much cocaine. <laughs> Just, it's never happened for me. I've never said it with, with the alcohol or the meth or anything else. Oh. I went to rehab when I was 18 and I got clean. I got clean and I got sober and I was involved by then we'd, we'd moved to Sacramento. My mom met another guy who was actually a good guy, but he was an AA. He was a, he was an AA guy when she met him and he didn't stay sober kind of thing. 
So it lasted for a few years, but in the, in the interim, he moved us from, in 1979, I moved from Huntington Beach, California to Sacramento. If you ever go to Sacramento, just keep going. You just drive right and through. Don't stop. Don't, don't, don't. Even if you have family there, just keep going. And, uh, but we landed in Sacramento and I'm 13 years old. And I had just left in 1979. I don't know you guys, if you guys know what was happening in Huntington Beach, California in 1979, but like punk rock had come to America and it had landed in Huntington Beach. Like it didn't land in New York, didn't land, you know, it had come from London and landed in Huntington. And so all my friends have like safety pins in their cheeks, blue hair, mohawks, stuff that the world had never seen before. They were complaining about long hair in the 60s. Like now it was like blue hair and mohawks and body piercings and all kinds of crazy stuff. I wasn't, I suppose. I was still a surfer kid, but I mean, like I show up in Sacramento at 13 and I got hair to the middle of my back because I'm a surfer kid from Huntington Beach and platinum blonde hair at that time. And uh, anyways, uh, I get sober in Sacramento when I'm 18. I go to rehab, 30 day rehab, starting point, 30 day inpatient recovery. And I get out and I stay sober in AA for five years. From 18 to 23, I stay sober and clean in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm involved with convention committees and uh, young people's AA was happening in, in 1985, 86, 87, 88, 89. Probably still is now. It looks a little different. But back then it was like, you know, young people's AA. And um, I wasn't really working the program. I mean, I was coming to your meetings. I was hanging out. I was sleeping with as many girls as I could, that kind of thing. And uh you know, and they were sleeping with all my friends after, you know, it's just the way that it was. Everybody was sleeping with everybody back then. And um, so it was more of a place for me to come and socialize and meet people. And like I had a group of friends that I got sober with in 85 that, you know, we were kind of all sober together and we kind of grew up together, 18, 19, 20. But I'm not really working a program and I don't understand about character defects. And I hadn't honestly work the steps to the best of my ability. I was just kind of a loiterer or an AA, but for some reason I wasn't pride. Probably I wasn't drinking or wasn't using. And then an opportunity arrived. I, I was a Scarface fan. So um, rule number two was like, don't get high on your own supply. Right. And I thought, well, I knew some successful Coke dealers when I was young, they were the ones that didn't use it. And I'm sober, so maybe I could sell a little drugs and get away with it, you know. And so I started selling meth five years sober. Pretty soon, me rule number two goes out the window after a minute, right? And, uh, you know, I made a lot of money selling methamphetamine in 1990, 91, and uh, it had blown up, especially like where I was living in Sacramento. And it's hard for me to get in touch with that. I mean, I've done a lot of inventory about it and that kind of stuff. But uh, like, I know, I know who that, I know who was using that shit. I know it was going to like 14, 15 year old kids, your children. And if I was making money, I didn't care. Like the truth is I disconnected from any feeling about what damage I was doing to society. 
I made a lot of money and blew it all. Of course, that's what we do. I started getting high on my own supply about 1993. And by 1995, I had 15 pending felonies in state court and not like minor ones either. Like I was out on $135,000 of bail. Every time I, I would get busted, I'd be in a stolen vehicle on my way to go do some kind of fucking crazy crime because I'm tweaked out, smoking meth at this point. And uh, I'd been smoking it for, you know, quite some time. And every time I bail out, I, I catch a new case. And now I'm, you know, felon in possession. I have a, I have a pistol. I always have a pistol. When I'm on meth, I can't be, I have a pistol. If you see me and I'm in 7-Eleven, I have a pistol. I might drop it sometimes because my pants don't fit because I only weigh like 140, 120 pounds. Sometimes my pistol falls out when I'm online to buy cigarettes. It happens. Sometimes when I'm in the nightclub, my pistol falls out. But I always have a pistol. So every time I get pulled over, I have a pistol and I'm out on bail. So I have the I have a pending. I got I'm just a, I'm a walking felony at all times. I always have drugs. I always have paraphernalia. I'm always in a stolen vehicle. And the only reason I can't drive mine is because uh, I have vehicles. I have a cat and a dog and a three-bedroom house and a wife. But I'm on the run now at some point, right? And I can't drive my own vehicles because I'll know who I am. So I got to get a G-Ride. I steal a car, drive it around for a while, steal another one. And so I go from kind of a normal person in AA to a fucking maniacal, just as bad as you can get, as bad as you can possibly imagine a human being becoming. You know, if I'm there, it's going to be, it could be extreme violence at any given moment. If I think something and I'm thinking a lot of different shit because I'm all tweaked out, right? Uh, I might do something just to anticipate what might happen. And uh, so I'm crazy. And uh, I hear that the feds are investigating me and a group of friends for, you know, how much time do I got? I got to get to. It's spectacular. You guys are held hostage. Uh, I've done that a few times. Uh, in 1995, they start investigating me and a crew of my friends for uh, manufacturing and uh, distributing methamphetamine in the state of California and Sacramento. And they built what was called, so they're, they're, the DEA is running around with my photograph blown up like this big, telling people, do you want to be a witness or do you want to be a defendant? Because we know you were involved because so-and-so said. And so they started building the case. It was about a year and a half before 1995. So they started building the case in like the, the end of 93. And um, <laughs> I'd seen the the DEA cards and, you know, people would tell me, Hey, they just came by, blah, blah, blah. I didn't tell them anything, that kind of stuff. But your main, my mind started running with, you know, I'm paranoid. I think my best friend's telling on me, I'm thinking they're tapping the phones and 
this is all before I'm on the run. I, didn't, I wasn't really on the run until like early 95. So I had all these pre and I'm tweaked out. So I don't know what's true and what's a lie. But in 1995, I find out they really were following me. <laughs> they really were tapping my phones about 8,000 hours worth of investigation. And so every time I did hop the back fence to go down the street to steal a car to go do some crazy crime, rob a museum, whatever fucking harebrained shit I had going on in my head at the time, it was a good thing I did that because I would have got caught for sure. And uh, uh, they really, you know, most people say, oh, they're listening, they're following me. They really were. And so um, in 95, I get arrested and it was because I, it wasn't for the DEA stuff. It was my state cases. I had not shown up to court. I'm incapable at this point of showing up to court. So I, I have, uh, like I said, I have these pending felonies in state court, 15 pending felonies, all stolen vehicle, burglary tools, you know, uh, felon in possession of a firearm. Cause I had done a little time earlier in my life and, uh, you know, out on bail committing a felony, just, crazy crazy stuff my lawyer looked at me and said Dude, someday you're gonna look back on this and say and at the time i was just like what are you talking about the judge my judge was like 35 she was asian beautiful she's really good looking i don't know if anybody ever had that experience but my judge was gorgeous <laughs> she was good looking and she would see me over and over in her courtroom she'd be like again like, what are you doing? She was like pleading with me because she could see that I wasn't really, I was just like, come on, you know? Yeah, I'm in a stolen car and I have some meth. I, who doesn't, right? I really believe that. I believe that everybody lived the way that I lived. And uh, I got a gun because you guys are after me, you know? Like you guys, sometimes you get me, I get you, you know? So I get indicted. I I go into, go to county jail. It's no bail this time. I get busted finally, and um, it's early 1995. I'm there. I'm in county jail for about 72 hours, and I get they open my cell door, and I, it's no. I'm no bailed. You know, I'm not getting out. I'm not bailing out this time. My bondsman's about done with me, anyways. Because every time he bails me out, because I had a bondsman in my pocket from when I was a drug dealer, high roller dude he like would bail me out no matter what the amount was. He knew I had jewelry and cars and, you know, he knew I had stuff that he could get in place of the money that I owed him. And so he would bail me out no matter the amount. But then when it became no bail, he was like, he wanted his money. <laughs> so, but 72 hours I'm in and I'm detoxing, right? Obviously I'm coming off a year and a half run and <clears throat> I get pulled out of my cell about 1 a.m. And it's just me and I'm walking with a, I'm coughed obviously. And I, I walk to this little classroom that they have in the County jail and, uh, sitting in this room is the FBA at the FBA, the FBI, the DEA, the IRS, local state task force, all any, any amount of law enforcement you could possibly imagine is sitting in this room. And there's like, we got you. And I'm just like, what? Fuck you. For real. That was how I felt. It's just like, do do your worst. Because I'm detoxing. I mean, like, I don't really care at the time. And I think it's all bullshit anyways. What are they going to do? They never caught me with any drugs. 
I never got busted one time with like, you know, personal use quantities, but I never got busted doing a drug deal or nothing like that. A month later, I get indicted by the grand jury for uh, it's a criminal conspiracy. It's they go back five years and they in, in the federal system, uh, hearsay evidence is admissible in court. I get indicted for a thousand kilo for manufacturer possession with intent to distribute a thousand kilos of methamphetamine. I have 16 co-defendants and I'm the number two man. There's a kingpin. There's me. And. Um, <clears throat> so. Facing a potential life sentences, three, the guidelines, feds have guidelines. You do this amount of drugs equals this amount of time. It's like cut and dry. There's no bartering unless you're willing to cooperate. And at this point, I was like, F you to everybody. I didn't care. I wasn't cooperating. You know, the people that had done it, I had names for them. You know, I had an opinion about people that were cooperating with the government. I don't anymore, but at that time I did. And uh, <clears throat> so I tried to escape because... <clears throat> I get a I get a handcuff key in prison or in jail. I was in county jail and I'm going to court <clears throat> and I get caught by the federal marshals with a handcuff key on my way to federal court in a transport situation. So they're transporting me. I'm cuffed up and I got leg irons, but my cuff key will get me out of both. And I get caught with the cuff key by the marshals, by the U.S. marshals. And they have a place for you when you try to escape. I wasn't trying to escape. I wasn't in the act of unlocking my cuffs or anything. I just had the key in case a break came. I was going to, you know, do what I could do because I knew that I didn't want to face the music on what was happening. And uh, so they put me in an escape risk cell, no human contact. When I went to court, it was like they put me in the cage inside of the van, like Hannibal Lecter, like exactly like Hannibal Lecter, not kind of like him exactly, but without the mask, because I wasn't trying to bite anybody. But they had me, they had a black box on my legs and my arms, like as pretty much a straight jacket situation, like you're not escaping from us. So the, I was an escape risk prisoner at that point. And I was, they, they sold me on the 16th floor or the well, it was the 16th, it was the eighth floor, but they're all two stories. So it was 16th floor. And I was three cells down from the Unabomber. I was in custody in that cell that I was living in when they brought him in on a helicopter and put him three cells down for me. That's the level of custody I had become. And I'd never even been to prison before. You know what I mean? Like, what are you talking about? I'm not Hannibal Lecter. And um, so took me two years to get the deal and the deal was 23 years in federal prison <clears throat> my kingpin took a deal for 25 i was the last person to take a deal and <clears throat> i was i got a little bit less time than him i got two years less than him i got 23 and <clears throat> so i went in in 1995 and they let me out in 2014 so i did 19 and a half on the 23 year federal sentence 87% or whatever that works out to be. And uh, so the first thing that I thought of, I heard, we just heard a tape on the way here. We were, we listened to, we did a fifth step. He did his fifth step with me. 
before this meeting tonight. And uh, congratulations and thank you. And um, <clears throat> so the reality sets in like, okay, now, okay. Uh, going to prison for 20 years. And like, really, honestly, what does that look like? My grandparents are dead by the time I get out. There's no early behavior shit. There's none of that. You're doing your 20. So, you know, what's the reality? You know, is she going to stick around? My dog and my cat and my wife, you know, she lasted about six months and uh, which is fair. You know, she was 25. I was 28 when I went in. And I was old when I got out and I'm older now, but, um, the first thing that I learned to do is make wine sitting up in that single cell. They move you every now and then they, I got busted so many times for the wine. Like they would just like come into my cell at the end, take everything out and say, you're in the hole. You know what I mean? Like all your property books, that kind of stuff. They take your commissary, whatever, and just leave you with the mattress and a, you know, whatever. No pillows in my county jail. I had no pillow for two years. Do you know how brutal that is? Try to sleep without a pillow. Try it for just a week. Bad neck problems still to this day. From the no pillow thing. But um, so I go to prison and they put me in a place called Lompoc. Uh, it's up north by Santa Barbara. And uh, I get as drunk and loaded as I possibly can to obliterate the truth of my present circumstances, which is that the life that I know is gone and that I have no idea what's going to happen when I'm 50 when I get out. Like, I was, I was mourning a lot of different things that had occurred. And so for the first five years, I got as drunk as as loaded as I could. And then... <clears throat> If you give, if you say, hey, here's some heroin, pay me in two weeks. I'm never going to say no. I'm never going to say no. I don't, I don't even, I've never even seen heroin before I went to prison, but I'm not going to say no. If this is going to change the way that my head feels and obliterate the truth of my present circumstances for any period of time, I'm going to say yes. Well, eventually I owe like a million dollars in prison money. Because I'd say yes to everybody. I owe everybody on the prison that had drugs. I, they would give me drugs and I would tell them I'll pay in two weeks and I couldn't pay anybody. And eventually there's consequences to that. It was really $1,500 in street money, but it was like a million dollars there. Because you're not getting, <clears throat> that's usually a joke, but uh, <clears throat> just 1500 bucks isn't that much money. But in there, it's a lot of money. And uh, But I was in trouble on this guy. I'm playing softball. I don't know why, but when I'm under the influence of strong narcotics, I like to play softball. And I'm a fairly good athlete. I'm a pretty good player, so they, they like me, and they like to play with me, but nobody, everybody in prison is like high school. Everybody knows everybody. It's like AA, too. Everybody knows everybody's business, right? And nobody wanted to be around me when... They came to get me because somebody was coming to get me. They didn't know who, but I owed so much money. Like I owed so many different gangs and I owed, I owed everybody money. And uh, I'm not even trying to make it sound worse than it is. I owed every major murdering prison gang money. 
and they come to collect at some point when you just avoid them when you're supposed to be paying them. Um, eventually they come get you and nobody wanted to be in my vicinity when they came to get me. So a man named bank robber, Dave, who just spoke at the Canyon club, like a week ago from Laguna beach, David B. He was on my softball team. Bank robber, Dave bank robber. Sounds like it. Ooh, bank robber, right? Every third person in prison is a bank robber. There's so many in the federal system. Like it, Never rob a bank because they're all in prison. Every single one of them. That's all I'm going to tell you. Bank robber Dave says, hey, man, I've been where you've been. I know what you're going through right now. I know you're in trouble. I know shit's bad. We got these meetings here. And I'm I'm on a maximum security penitentiary yard. It's not like, like I live in a murder. My unit's called, I live in an M unit. It's called murder unit. It's not called that for like no good reason. It's called that for a reason. And uh, <clears throat> for some reason, I told him that I would I, I would go the next day. And that was on June 20th of 2000. And on June 21st, I went to a meeting with Bank Robber Dave. And I haven't taken anything that affects me from the neck up from that day to this. Nothing. Nothing, a little something to help me sleep or take the edge off or... <clears throat> Not that I'm always sane, <laughs> but I'm fairly in my right mind most of the time. And uh, I did a lot of damage when I was out there to my brain. Most of us do. Look at James, you know what I mean? So uh, he invited me to a meeting and uh, I had had that experience with AA when I was young, 18 to 23, I was sober. And something happened when I went to the meetings, man. We had these H&I people that would come in, people like you, people that would sign up to come into the prison, to come spend an hour and a half with us or an hour or however long the meeting was. And uh, it had a profound effect on me. And I immediately realized what I had done to my life. At that point, I didn't know if I was ever going to get out. To be honest with the way that I was going, I absolutely did not plan to get out of prison. I didn't believe that I was going to make it through 20 years living the way that I was living. And it probably, I was probably correct. Um, but I think, uh, you know, God inspired David to talk to me that day and my ears were open, you know? And, um, so I came into the meetings and I started, we had five meetings a week at Lompoc at that time. We had a facilitator who was a member of the program and he worked at the prison, but he was in AA. And he would bring speakers in like we heard everybody came in. You know who came in? Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Swear to God. Hand to God. Anthony Hopkins came and spoke at Lompoc. He's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, not to break his anonymity, but we are in a meeting. We're in a meeting, right? How can you break his anonymity in a meeting? But Hopkins came in to speak a bunch of people, but great speakers, Cliff Roach, I mean, that little Clancy, all of them, Johnny Harris, like all the speakers that you've ever heard of or, you know, great speakers. And Lee would bring them in for us. Once a month, we had a speaker meeting and then we, we had a tape meeting on Tuesdays. I listened to a thousand speaker tapes, tapes before I got out. Over a thousand. Well, I don't want to say a thousand. A lot. <laughs> Every Tuesday for 15 years. And then more. And uh, because sometimes we listen to two or three, you know, if we had the room and the time. Um, but I did something different this time. 
I worked the steps with integrity for the first time. I didn't just, you know, I did a searching and fearless moral inventory as outlined in the book. Four columns, it was like 26 legal pages because I had a lot of crap, right? And uh, thank you. And <clears throat> at a year and a half, they I was a year and a half sober in 2001, the end of, or beginning of 2002, they transferred me. My points had dropped because I wasn't, you know, I, I, had, I was going to the hole a lot when I was in prison. I always had a knife. I was always cooking wine. I was doing whatever. I had weapons, you know, stuff was happening in there. And uh, when I was drinking and using for the first five years, but all of a sudden I'm like not getting in trouble anymore. And I'm going to these meetings and my points dropped You know, I got off state parole and that, that was a factor and a few different factors. And they sent me to a place called black Canyon in Phoenix, Arizona, outside of Phoenix, Arizona, it's a federal prison, but it's not maximum security. It's medium security called FCI. And so I went to FCI Phoenix and <clears throat> I was away from my safety net, but I was kind of, I had been sober for a year and a half and I had worked the steps with integrity and I had shared all my life story with another man and I had made amends. I had written letters. I had, I had went to all the people that I owed money to in prison. The first week that I was sober, I did like what Dr. Bob did. I ran right out to all of them and told them, look, I'm doing something different, man. I don't know if it's going to work, but please don't offer me any more drugs. Like I need to do something different. I, I, I kind of am getting a will to survive this thing. And everybody pretty much respected that. You know, and I said, I'll make terms, I'll make payments, I'll do what I can. I would give them five dollars a month, ten dollars, I'd give them whatever I could. And by the time I left there, I had everybody paid off. Took me a while, but I mean I paid everybody off and they respected me for what I was doing. And uh, so I went to Phoenix and the meetings were spotty. You know, every now and then there'd be a meeting, you know, once or by the time I left Phoenix, Arizona, six years later, we needed a bigger room. Like there was four core members when I got there, like four guys that would show up every Tuesday night or whatever. By the time I left, like the room held probably 35. We needed a bigger room because the, the people. So I started sponsoring guys and they started sponsoring guys and I would spend the time with them going through the book. Like James talked about, we would go through the book line by line, page by page. They would do an inventory. We would share it. And then they were ready to sponsor somebody else and they would take them through the amends process and all 12 steps. And so I sponsored a lot of guys in the 14 and a half years that I was in prison before I got out. And, uh, I ended up spending my last, uh, eight years at terminal Island right here outside of long beach. It's in long beach, actually San Pedro. And, um, H and I would come in, people would come in, people would come into the meetings there, local members. And when I got out, I was released to a halfway house and, uh, and I had a, I had a recovery program in place for me because I honestly didn't know which way I was. I, I knew at 14 years clean that which way I was going to go. I, I knew nobody else knew. My family didn't know Like people that knew me my whole life. They didn't know what was going to happen with me when I got out. I could go one way or I could go the other. Cause my plan when I first went in was learn how to do armed robberies. I mean, why wouldn't you armored cars? You know, like I want to learn from the best I'm in federal prison. So, but they weren't the best. They got caught right all. <clears throat> anyways uh i jumped in with both feet some people that are here know me from when i first got out and uh i was released in 2014 i've been out here for you know nine and a half years and uh and i'm very involved with alcoholics anonymous i have a sponsor uh, my home group is bellflower big book i attend a meeting on monday night and when on thursday nights with my sponsor 
And, um, and I love the life that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. I met my wife in AA and she's the, in case she listens to the tape, it's her name is Jasmine. She's beautiful. <laughs> she's my favorite person in the whole world. She is. No, she really is. The people that know me and my wife as a couple, like we have a beautiful relationship. We have a sober home. We're raising two teenagers and uh, sometimes that gets a little crazy, but they're good kids, man. And um, I live a ridiculously blessed life. During COVID, I went to school and I got my general contractor's license because I've been doing the work since I got out. I'm employable today. And uh, I'm a general building contractor for the state of California. Like I can, I could build this building legally. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And uh, <clears throat> so I go to work every day. I do what I'm supposed to do. I have some shit that I'm still working on because I'm a human being and I'm an alcoholic. But uh, I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm blessed for the life that it's given me. And thank you guys for listening to my story. <laughs>